Have you ever made a promise and then didn't keep your word? Have you ever told someone that you would do something and then didn't follow through? You failed to do what you said you would do. We know all too well, don't we, that keeping promises is easier said than done. God has made promises. Should we fear that he will be no different than we are or than others are? This is our last session in the book of Esther. And you recall, if you've been here these last few weeks, rather than a chapter-by-chapter exposition of the book, we've been looking instead at some of the themes, the main thoughts and themes that are running through this text. First, we, we, we were drawn to the literary structure of the book. We learned a new word, peripety, uh, which is a term used to refer to a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of a story. Indeed, the storyline of the book of Esther is filled with reversals of fortune. We've seen it in the, in the life of Esther, uh, in Mordecai, in Haman. Uh, we see it in the Jewish people. And then we saw perhaps the most significant theme that is present here, which is God's providence. How God uses human decisions, human actions to accomplish his divine will and intentions without intervening in the miraculous. Last week our focus was on the terrible sin of pride. and We saw it demonstrated in the lives of two men in the scriptures there in the book of Esther, Haman, and King Ahasuerus. And then we talked about this deadly sin in our own lives This morning, what I want to do as I wrap up is I want to put this book into the context of Israel's history. Their history as a people chosen by God to be an instrument of blessing to the whole world. This is the centerpiece of his redemptive plan, and it comes down to a man, Jesus, Messiah. We might ask the question, well, why is this history important for us today? You know, what can we as mostly Gentiles in the 21st century gain from studying the history of the Jews? I would say primarily because we see God at work in a world that needed a Savior. At work in a world that needs a Savior. And God chose to implement this plan through a people that he called to be part of that plan. And as we'll see later, we are the spiritual heirs to God's promises to Israel. Together with those Jews who believe that Jesus is Messiah, we are part of God's blessing to the world. And we are recipients of eternal blessings and promises. But it all hinges on whether or not God can keep his word. Will he be faithful to the promises that he's made? If he has failed to keep his promises to Israel, what's to keep him from failing to keep his promises to us? Now, when we look at biblical history, we'll notice all the way through, including here in Esther, that God's faithfulness is on display. And so it starts when God calls a man out from all others and he makes a covenant with him. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. We read about it in Genesis 12. Look at this. I will make of you a great nation, 
and I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God reiterates that covenant to, to, to his son Isaac and to his grandson Jacob and to his descendants. We see it applied to Israel as a nation through the covenant that he makes with them on Mount Sinai. It's a covenant that's restated and it's expanded upon by prophets throughout biblical history. It's a covenant that reaches its highest point in what we call the new covenant. Where we read in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The fulfillment, of course, of this promise is in his son, in God's son. And so we see in him a better covenant. It's, it's a better mediator, a better sacrifice, a heavenly tabernacle. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews writes, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it begins when God makes this unconditional covenant with Abraham, a covenant that is guaranteed by one thing and one thing alone, God's faithfulness. And then God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel at Sinai, a covenant with temporal, material blessings. But this one is conditional. It's conditional on the people keeping the law of the covenant, keeping the statutes that God was giving them. And God warns them over and over uh, and, and, and about this necessity of being faithful to the covenant demands, their allegiance to him. And for example, I'll give you just one, when, when Solomon's temple is about to be dedicated, God appears to Solomon that night and says to him, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut Israel off from the land I have given them. And the house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And when God's patience reached its end, he allowed his people to reap the fruit of their rebellion, just as he had forewarned. First of all, the nation of Assyria swept in and conquered the northern tribes of Israel. Around 722, took them into captivity, dispersed them all over the empire. And then the Babylonians completed their destruction of Israel and Jerusalem and of the temple around 586 B.C., carried off these captivities, spread them all through the empire. But through it all, and this is so important, but through it all, God never forgot his people. In fact, he told them through the prophet Jeremiah before they ever went into exile, he said, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. 
And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. This prophecy came true when Cyrus, the Persian king, who displaced the Babylonians, issued an edict that the Jews could return to their homeland, to Judah. Uh, a minority of the exiles did return under Zerubbabel and Ezra. But the majority of them remained behind. And this is where the book of Esther comes in. The question must have been on their minds, were they still God's people? Probably didn't seem like it when they looked at the circumstances that they were living in. Was God still the God of the covenant? Were they still the people of the covenant? These are questions that are very reasonable as they would think about the rebellion and the idolatry and the disobedience of their parents and their grandparents and themselves. And then we have the events that are recorded in the book of Esther. An amazing chain of events. It begins with King Ahasuerus throwing a six-month banquet for all of the leaders of the peoples throughout his empire. And at the end of that time, they have a one-week festival for all that is living in the capital city. He's drunk out of his mind, and he decides that he's going to show off what to him is his prized possession, his wife. And so he summons beautiful Queen Vashti to come and be shown off, but she refuses, refuses to come. Well, this obviously makes the king irate. He pulls his counselors together. He asks them, what shall we do with her? And they say, listen, you don't do something about her. Women are going to rise up all over the kingdom. They're not going to listen to their husbands. We're going to have problems in River City. And so what should we do? Well, they tell him, you ought to banner from your presence, which is exactly what the king does. Three years later, after a disastrous defeat, military conquest against Greece, he returns home, realizes he doesn't have a queen, and once again his advisors come and say, listen, why don't you hold a beauty contest all throughout the land? Let's pick somebody to be the new queen. That's exactly what happens. Esther, a Jewess, is selected, someone who hides her ethnicity on the advice of her uncle slash now adoptive father, Mordecai. Next up on the stage, as we're kind of walking through the story, is a man by the name of Haman. He's promoted to the second position in the kingdom, right behind the king himself. And on instruction from the king, everyone is to bow down to Haman, which everybody does, except this guy, Mordecai. And it just enrages Haman. He discovers that Mordecai is a Jew, and he sets into motion a plan to get the king to issue an edict that on such and such a day that was determined by the casting of lots, or pur, what it was called, that on that day all of those in the kingdom could rise up against any Jew in their midst, kill them, and plunder their possessions. One day, and Haman would be rid of Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people. Mordecai exhorts Esther to appeal to the king on behalf of her people. And he warns her, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. And then often we jump to the end of the next verse, but we miss the first part of it. Because I think what we're going to see is that Mordecai in some sense has a conviction that God's people will live. 
And so he goes on to say to Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jew from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Amazing. Mordecai must have believed in the promises of God to sustain his people, to always keep a remnant of his people alive. He must have been counting on God's faithfulness uh, to the covenant promise. How it would work out, what it would look like, he wasn't sure. But he does seem to be sure that God is yet going to not abandon his people. Last week we saw Esther revealing to the king Haman's conspiracy, aided by his own edict, you'll recall, and appealing for the deliverance of the Jews. And this sets about the fall of Haman. And Esther pleads with Ahasuerus to rescind his edict, something that he says he cannot do. But he does something else. He gives Esther and Mordecai permission and authority to write another edict. Let's go to the text. I'm going to Esther chapter 8. If you have your Bible or your electronic device, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 525, Esther chapter 8. I'm going to start reading at verse 8. So Esther chapter 8 and verse 8. The king says to Mordecai and to Esther, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. 
on that fateful day which Haman had determined by the throwing of dice to conspire to destroy all of the Jews. Instead, the Jews destroyed their enemies who rose up against them. Did you notice, though, but they did not plunder their possessions. They simply defended themselves. Esther requested an extra day for Jews in the capital city of Susa to continue to fight against their enemy. The writer of the book gives us no clue or hint as to why that is. It just was. And then look at Esther chapter 9 and verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. And this began the celebration of Purim. And this is the reason for the book of Esther. An unknown author writing years after these events, explaining the reasons, the basis for this celebration, this festival of remembrance. As we step back a little bit, and as we look a little deeper into the foundation that undergirds this book, I think there's one thing we have to see, and that's the faithfulness of God. Here's the significance. God keeps his promises to Israel. He keeps his covenant promise. He remains the protector and the sustainer of this people that he'd called by his name to be different. We see once again, as we do throughout all the pages of the Old Testament, God's faithfulness in spite of people's failings. When I study the Old Testament, I, I think there's, to me, there's a key to understanding God's actions in the Old Testament, and it's this. God's actions change so that they remain consistent to his character. It explains why God disciplined his people when they were disobedient and rebellious and idolatrous, and then he turns right around and he forgives them and restores them when they repent. God's actions are always such that they remain consistent with his character that cannot change. A.W. Tozier writes in his excellent book, The Knowledge of the Holy, God being who he is cannot cease to be what he is. And being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. He is at once faithful and immutable, that is unchangeable, so that all his words and acts must be and must remain faithful. So God must discipline his people when they're disobedient and rebellious. He always appeals to people to turn from their waywardness, from their wickedness, from their rebellion. And he promises that he will restore. Here's a good example. Uh, as his judgment against Israel was near, he appealed to his people through the prophet Joel. And so in Joel chapter 2, we read this, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. One of the great attributes or characteristics of God we see is his faithfulness. It's a theme all throughout Scripture. Let me just illustrate. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You look in Psalm 36, 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Probably a familiar passage, Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So what applications might we draw out from the events, from the story of the book of Esther? Let me, let me just suggest three. One is that God's providence is yet at work in your life and mine as his children. We considered this truth in detail a couple of weeks ago. But let me remind you uh, what we're talking about when we say God's providence. Uh, when we speak of God's providence, Karen Job says, we mean that God in some invisible and inscrutable way governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. If you've logged a few years of life and can look back, can't you see decisions and actions sometimes made by you, sometimes made by others? But God has used them to put you on a path, to move you to a different path, to guide your way. God uses his providence uh, in this amazing, infinite wisdom that he has to accomplish his will in you and in others. God's providence. The second thing is God is ever faithful. We as believers have become recipients of God's covenant promise. Look what Paul says when he writes to the Galatians. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Willem van Gemeren writes, With the coming of Jesus Christ and his ministry, death, and resurrection, the patriarchal promises reach their most significant focus. Not only are all the promises to be fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ, but also in him all true believers become recipients of the promises. In other words, Jesus' life and ministry is like a lens at the center of redemptive history. And as God was faithful to his people, the Jews, so he's faithful to us who have been grafted in, Paul says, into that identity as a chosen people. Tozier writes, upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenants and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. Let me add this from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones from his book, Great Doctrines of the Bible. He's talking about God's faithfulness. And he says, what does it mean? Well, I've never met with a better definition of the faithfulness of God than this. 
When you say that God is faithful, you mean that he is one upon whom you can safely lean. It means one on whom you can absolutely rely, one upon whom you can depend, one upon whom you can stay yourself without ever being in doubt that he will suddenly let go and let you go. And so I encourage you, stay faithful to him because he will always be faithful to you. He will always keep his promises. Stay faithful even when you cannot see how things will work out, even when it looks like you're in the midst of a storm. These are precisely the times when we need most to rely upon and believe in God's faithfulness. The last thing I would throw at you is this. God is the defender of his people. This was amazingly demonstrated through the events recorded in the book of Esther. And we must see it as true today. You see, the threat against the Jews of Esther's day was a threat against God's redemptive plan. It was a threat against God himself. And it was an assault against the people that God had called and chosen to be his own, to bear his name. And it's continued on down even into our day. The book of Esther and its message of God's safeguarding and deliverance is still an important part of Jewish history. Do you realize that every year, even today, the book is read in synagogues all over the world on Purim? Um, it's interesting when you read how it's done. When, when they're reading the story, every time Haman's name is mentioned, the people boo and hiss. Whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned, they cheer. They really do get into the story. And why is the story so important? It's because it reassures them that they will survive. How often in their history has it looked like the last chapter was being written? Robert Gordas writes of the contemporary significance of this. He says, anti-Semites have always hated the book. And the Nazis forbade its reading in the crematoria and the concentration camps. In the dark days before their deaths. Jewish inmates of Auschwitz, Dachau, Treblinka, and Bergen-Belsen wrote the book of Esther from memory and read it in secret on Purim. Both they and their brutal foes understood its message. This unforgettable book teaches that Jewish resistance to annihilation then as now represents the service of God and devotion to his cause. In every age, martyrs and heroes, as well as ordinary men and women, have seen in it not merely a record of past deliverance, but a prophecy of future salvation. Now, the New Testament declares that the promises made by God in the old to his people are made secure by the death and resurrection of Jesus, his son. That's what we celebrated this morning. The people of Israel were spared destruction at the hand of Haman and Ashuerus as God remained faithful to the covenant promise that he had made through Abraham's descendants that eventually would come a Messiah, Jesus the Christ. But now in God's redemptive plan, it goes beyond deliverance from physical death and it goes to the most mortal enemy, spiritual death. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection meant. And what a reversal of fortune for descendants of Adam who fell along with him and now come under God's judgment. 
Because of Jesus and his ministry on the cross, we now who were once condemned are now forgiven. You know, what greater peripety could we ever experience than that? And though the forces of evil and evil men today conspire against God's people, those who believe in Jesus, whether it's Jew or Gentile alike, God says he will keep his promises. He will never abandon his people. And he'll keep promises to eternity. Now, there are no promises of exemption from problems, difficulties, from even persecution and death. But we have to understand that this great enemy, eternal death, was dealt with at the cross and with the empty tomb. One lesson from the book of Esther is that in the conspiracy of the world against us, God's people, they will not and it will not ultimately determine our destiny. God does that. And we need a reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises. They will stand. The Apostle Paul makes an amazing declaration of God's faithfulness in bringing to completion the work that he's begun in the lives of his children. And so he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is, say the word, faithful. He will surely do it. I'll close with one more quote from Karen Jobes. The omnipotent word of God that created the universe justifies our certainty in the continuity of God's providential work in and through human lives to move his people from death to life as he moves history towards its end on the day of judgment. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much that you are faithful, that you've never made a promise that you haven't kept. And all of those statements that comprise promises to us of your forgiveness, of eternal life, of your presence with us, of the power to live rightly, all of those promises you keep. It calls on us to trust you, to believe you, and to rely upon you as we go through our daily lives. So may this week be one in which you'll call back to our thoughts how faithful you are and how faithful you will be. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.